Good evening, everyone. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, and welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Better dig deep, put them in the ground. But on their hands, they're held bound. Save us all. Tonight I want to talk about a word, a word that I think is very important in understanding the United States of America, and that word is sovereignty. Now, when I looked up the definition of sovereignty, several different uh, things came out, supreme power or authority. And then there's this thing that defines national sovereignty, the authority of a state to govern itself or another state. Of course, we in the United States of America, we have territories, but we're not really seeking to invade and overtake other nations. And then the other one is a self-governing state. That is really the thing that I want to talk about. Number one, supreme power and authority. And number two, the self-governing state. Because I think right now, the big challenge that we see in the United States of America is this question of sovereignty. Let's start out by looking at national sovereignty. Because the United States of America is a constitutional republic, not a democracy, people. We have a representative democracy. That's the means by which we elect our representatives, our officials, who go and they speak up for us based upon we, the people, the consent of the governed. They form our government, the three branches thereof. Some people, well, they're not getting that understanding of civics the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch. And when you read the Constitution, each one of them has their own separate duties and responsibilities. I'll give you a case in point. For the legislative branch in the United States Constitution, when you look at Article 1, Section 8, about 18 things. 18 things are the duties and responsibilities, the enumerated powers, the directives, for the legislative branch of the United States government. And I'm sure when you look at the constitutions of your respective states, you see the exact same thing. And I would tell you to look at that. But in our constitution, it says in the 10th amendment, which is the very last amendment in our very first 10 amendments, which are the individual bill of rights. And remember sovereignty that it says that those powers not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states and to the people. So we have to start thinking about this thing called national sovereignty. We have to start thinking about this thing called state sovereignty. We have to start thinking about individual sovereignty. Those are the three levels of sovereignty. And they're supposed to be all acting together, nested together, understanding their boundaries and understanding their left and right limits. But right now, that's failing here in the United States of America. And first and foremost, look at the federal government responsibility to protect our sovereignty. I talked about it a few weeks ago in our first podcast about this whole thing with the immigration issue, where it says in Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, there are two things that the federal government is supposed to guarantee to every state in the union. First and foremost, a Republican form of government, not 
Republican Party, a Republican form of government. Why? Because America is a constitutional republic. And what is so important in a constitutional republic? The rule of law, which is our constitution, and the respect and regard of individual rights, freedoms, liberty, and sovereignty. The second thing is to protect every state in the union from invasion. So how is it that we have a federal government that is failing? A federal government that is not owning up to its supposed guaranteed clause, which is there in our rule of law. They're in complete violation. A federal government that is undermining our sovereignty. This is not just an immigration issue. This is an invasion issue. We're not talking about a thousand here, a thousand there. We're talking about millions. We're talking about hundreds of thousands that we don't even have any accountability of. We're talking about terrorists that have come across that border illegally and we've lost track of. You can't have a nation. You cannot have a constitutional republic. If you're not even protecting its borders, you're not even protecting its sovereignty. And so when people talk about high crimes and misdemeanors and an impeachable offense, well, I got to tell you, if you are not protecting the sovereignty of your nation, and especially if you're the president of the United States of America, if you're members of the United States legislative branch, and supposedly you took an oath to uphold the Constitution, uh, Katie barred a door. Hello, McFly, you're in violation of that oath. So why are you there? If you don't believe in the sovereignty of the United States of America, why would you want to be in charge of it? Other than the fact that you want to destroy it. The exact same administration, this Biden administration, just recently tried to submit amendments to the World Health Organization, which is really just a puppet of China and surrendering our health policy sovereignty to the World Health Organization. Now, those amendments have been removed, but just the same as the Disinformation Government Board, don't be surprised if somehow those amendments get snuck into it. And furthermore, if we are a sovereign nation, these United States of America, and states are sovereign and the individual is sovereign, we'll get to that in a minute, then how is it that we are seeking to surrender our sovereignty to a global body politic because they have nothing to do with our constitution. We're just a member nation that says that we will help to maintain certain things in the country. But what we start to see much the same as with the European union, which was established to try to help the nations of Europe who were sovereign themselves to be able to have a stronger trading block, a trading platform. But what has happened, the European Union has, well, they've just come in and subsumed the sovereignty of these respective sovereign states. And they are starting to dictate policy, immigration policy, economic policy. You just go right down the line. They have usurped the sovereignty of those nations in Europe under this body politic. And I think that's exactly what you see happening here where this Biden administration, for whatever reason, is going over and, you know, having these negotiations and trying to, again, cede over more of our sovereignty, our supreme power and authority to a failed, corrupt organization. Let me tell you something. I don't want an organization that has China and Russia on the Security Council 
having anything to say or do with our sovereignty. An organization that has, you know, such incredible heinous countries as part of his human rights commission. You got to be kidding me. But see, that's what happens when we're not paying attention and we're allowing the progressive socialist left, the Marxists, the statists, communists, to cede over our sovereignty. Look at what's happening in the United States of America. We're going to another organization called the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, which is now OPEC Plus because Russia is part of it, because we have eroded our energy independence, our sovereignty in the area of energy security. And we've turned it over to others. We're going over and we're begging them. Please turn on the spigots. Please let us have energy. And we have a president that stood up in Japan and said that, you know what? I'm just tickle pink and giddy because we have this incredible transition toward a green new deal, which completely undermines your sovereignty. It comes even into your home. When the government starts to tell you what type of source of energy you have for your transportation means or for even your home, the government is outside of its boundaries because I don't see that anywhere in article one, section eight. I don't know that that's an enumerated power. Now, the other thing we have to look at is the individual sovereignty. And there is no other nation in the world that is based upon this, that the supreme power and authority of the individual is linked to the creator God. That's what it says in the declaration of independence that you're an alien of a rights are endowed to you by the creator God, the Judeo-Christian God, and those being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we're going to talk in a little bit about one of my favorite essays here. Uh, we brought that up last week with Tho Bishop, and this is The Law by Frederick Bastiat, because if we don't realize the supreme entity, the most sovereign entity in this constitutional republic in the United States of America is the individual, and left, right, front, and center, we're seeing those freedoms, those liberties, liberties being eroded. How do we get to that point in the United States of America? It's because of John Locke's Second Treatise of Government, 1689, natural rights theory. Life, liberty, and property were those inalienable rights that came to you from the Creator. The prevailing thought of the day before John Locke was divine rights theory, saying that basically you're come and go, your buy and your leave came from a duke, a duchess, a prince, a princess, a king, a queen, what have you. Locke said no. Every one of us has that sovereign relationship with a sovereign God. And see, again, that's why the left wants to undermine that Judeo-Christian God, the omnipotence, the omniscience, to say that God didn't get it right with one man and one woman. God can't even control the weather. We control the weather. You can be whatever you want to be. All of these things are setting up to undermine that sovereign relationship that we have. And so what is happening in the United States of America that is so disconcerting and troubling is that individual sovereignty and national sovereignty is in a seminal conflagration against the progressive socialist left's ideological agenda. It's not about your rights. It's not about your sovereignty. It's about their agenda. And they're going to do everything they can, which means that 
you don't have enumerated rights. You have whatever rights that they say. And that's why Bastiat, in his incredible essay, The Law, he talked about what the purpose of the law is and really what the purpose of government is. He said it is because personality, meaning life, liberty, and property exist beforehand that men make laws. What then is law? As I have said elsewhere, it is the collective organization of the individual right to lawful defense. If every man has the right of defending, even by force, his person, his liberty, and his property, a number of men have the right to combine together to extend, to organize a common force to provide regularly for this defense. Collective right then has its principle, its reason for existence, its lawfulness, an individual right. The left does not see us as individuals. They just see us as a collective. They don't see us as having individual sovereignty. They don't see this nation as having individual sovereignty. All they see is their agenda. Bastiat says the law is the organization of the natural right, John Locke of lawful defense. It is the substitution of collective for individual forces for the purpose of acting in the sphere in which they have a right to act, of doing what they have a right to do to secure persons, life, liberties, and properties. Not take it away from you. And to maintain each in its right so as to cause justice to reign over all. Such a people would have the most simple, the most economical, the least oppressive, the least to be felt, the most restrained, the most just, and consequently, the most stable government that could be imagined. We always hear the folks on the left saying we got to be more like the French, more like the Europeans. Well, here's a French economist. They wrote this essay back in the 1850s. Now, what is the problem? What perverts the law? It's very simple. The law has been perverted through the influence of two very different causes, naked greed and misconceived philanthropy. One hand, foreign aid, the other hand, welfare. I've often said that there's two ways to enslave a populace. You work them for no pay, or you pay them for no work. And in either way, what you're doing is you're undermining their person, their personality, their liberties, and their properties you're undermining their individual sovereignty. What does Basiat say toward the end as what is that best form of governance that is out there? Which are the happiest, the most moral and the most peaceable nations? Those where the law interferes the least with private activity, where the government is the least felt, where individuality has the most scope. In public opinion, the most influence, where the machinery of the administration is the least important and the least complicated. You ever read some of the laws that are being passed up there on Capitol Hill, or maybe even in some of your states, where taxation is lightest and least unequal? No, none of that fair share talk. Popular discontent, the least excited. No mobocracy. And the least justifiable, where the responsibility of the individuals and the classes is the most active. See, when government wants control, the individual is not responsible and accountable. They just see us as collectors. That's why we have this issue all of a sudden with gun control. Look what Justin Trudeau is doing just to the north of us. And, of course, our dubious president came out over the weekend and said, those 9 millimeter calibers, 
those are really dangerous. They can explode your lung. So that lets you know this is not just about semi-automatic rifles. It's about all weapons. And where consequently, if morals are not in perfect state at any rate, they tend incessantly to correct themselves. We have to get back to a moral society. You want to talk about Uvalde? You want to talk about Buffalo, Parkland? It's our culture. It's our society. Where labor, capital, and production suffer the least from artificial displacements, where mankind follows most completely in its own natural course, natural law again, natural rights theory, where the thought of God prevails the most over the inventions of men, those in short who realize the most nearly this idea that within the limits of right all should flow from the free, perfectible, and voluntary action of man, nothing being attempted by the law or by force except the administration of universal justice. Very short essay, about 57 pages, The Law by Frederick Bastiat. If you want to understand the purpose of the law, if you want to understand the purpose of government, if you want to understand what sovereignty really means, you need to pick this up and have it. You know, recently on an interview with Mark Levin, I talked about this essay. Mark Levin said, Ronald Reagan had a copy of the law in the Oval Office. Sovereignty. It's the recognition that the supreme power and authority in these United States of America is with the consent of the governed, the individual people, because they derive that supreme power and authority from a supreme creator God. We must also understand that America is the greatest experiment in a self-governing state. But if we're not careful, every single aspect of our lives will be ceded over to someone else. And our national sovereignty, which is so important. Because America is not just a piece of land between Canada, Mexico, the Atlantic Ocean, and the Pacific Ocean, and the Gulf of Mexico, and the Caribbean Sea. America is a sovereign nation. We have our rule of law, the Constitution. And if you forget what sovereignty means, then you will find yourself no longer a citizen in a constitutional republic, but a subject. And that is something that we will not surrender to here in the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. So we have three great guests that we're going to talk to about this issue of sovereignty tonight. We've got Darren Beatty, who is the founder of Revolver.com, Matthew Terman, who is a board member and investigative reporter with Project Veritas, and then we also have a person that can clearly articulate this whole issue about individual sovereignty and the fact that you derive your supreme power and authority from the creator God, and that's Tim Barton of Wall Builders, Inc. So stand by. The Steadfast and Loyal Podcast is about to get rolling. (laughs) 
We're going to continue this discussion about sovereignty, and I kind of uh, enumerated some things on those issues, national sovereignty, individual sovereignty, the way that we see this administration kind of undermining it. We're not kind of actually doing it. And so we have got Darren Beatty here with us, and he is the founder of Revolver.News and former member of the Trump administration. Darren, good evening, and welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, you served in a presidential administration as a speechwriter, so you understand this uh, looking at the duties and responsibilities of the executive branch. What do you see as our big challenges right now when we talk about this issue of sovereignty? From First and foremost, let's talk about it at the national level. Well, you know, sovereignty can mean a lot of things. It's often invoked in the context of our national sovereignty as opposed to sort of global international institutions, for instance, the UN or, for instance, the World Economic Forum or any of these sort of transnational bodies that like to arrogate more authority to themselves. And I think that's a very important aspect of the discussion. However, I would urge us not to overlook an additional component of sovereignty, maybe the most pressing component of sovereignty, which is ultimately um, how much influence the regular folks, the American people, have over the destiny of their own country. And that's not just an issue of international bodies. That's an issue of who's running the United States and on behalf of whose interests. And I think those are the questions that are the most pressing now in order for the American people to regain some hold over the destiny of the lives of themselves, their families, and of the country that they're loyal to. Now, you bring up a great point because the World Economic Forum just recently met over in Davos. And when you listen to some of the things that came out of that gathering summit, whatever you want to call it, It is really about these global elites that are sitting back and talking about how they can have more control over the lives of individuals. And now how do we see it playing out? I mean, look at the food shortages that we're having. Look at the baby formula shortages, the oil and gas shortages, all of these things that are coming together and ahead. And uh, after you kind of talk about the World Economic Forum, then we'll talk about this issue with the amendments that the Biden administration tried to put forward to the uh, World Health Organization. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, I'm Kent Charnig, and I'm the founder of El Paso County, Colorado Progressive Veterans. Don't worry, we're not crazy tree huggers, but we do have an amazing podcast talking about nothing but the military and veterans. Please check us out, epccpv.org. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Exactly. Now, there's a lot of disturbing things coming out of the World Economic Forum, censorship being one of the foremost issues and concerns, of course, of the uh, global commissars. But you run the gamut. The, The World Economic Forum has certainly established itself as a preeminent threat to the flourishing and the freedom of American citizens, for sure. 
You know, I made it a comparison and kind of gave people a little historical background in the monologue looking at the European Union and how initially the European Union was supposed to be about bringing together these sovereign nations, sovereign states in Europe, to create a better trading platform or trading block against other nations. And slowly but surely, look at what you see the European Union delving into, uh, immigration issues, all of these different things. Uh, do you see that being a threat for the United States of America? Because some people have talked about a North American Union even. Well, I suppose that could be a threat, but to get back to my initial point, I don't think we need to entertain these hypotheticals in order to be concerned with the status quo. I think whether or not we have a North uh, American Union, the people in charge of the United States, the people who run the United States are completely corrupt and illegitimate in their own right. I'm not sure things would be that much worse at this point if we went into a free trade union or North North American union. The people who are running the show right now are just as indifferent and indeed hostile to the best interests of the American people as any kind of reconfiguration that one could imagine on the global stage. And so that's really the ultimate question of sovereignty is, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a weak consolation prize, even if you have sovereignty in the technical sense within your own country, if your leaders are actively hostile to their own citizens, which I think is the condition that prevails today. Yeah, that's amazing to me, because when I watched Joe Biden in Japan, and he seemed somewhat giddy when he talked about this incredible transition that we're making toward, uh, you know, green energy and the fact that we are crushing the budgets of everyday American citizens, you know, trying to make sure that they can fill up their gas tanks. You know, why is it that when we have the resources here that you have an administration that would want to seed uh, over our energy independence to an organization like OPEC, again, another one of these, you know, I don't want to call it body politic, but it is an energy politic almost that is really would love to undermine that ability because I think energy security is a, an important part of the sovereignty of the United States of America. Absolutely. Um, I think we definitely have a lot of resources that we're not tapping into and uh, command and control over one's own resources for the benefit of one's own people, I think is a indispensable component of sovereignty in the true sense. And not only Biden, but we've had a lot of leaders going back many, many decades who have sort of abrogated this responsibility and has really not discharged the incredible resources of the United States, their most powerful effect. And I think that really needs to change soon, or we're going to continue to see really bad problems economically and otherwise in our country. Well, let's talk about the World Health Organization, because as you know, the uh, Biden administration was going to propose some amendments to the World Health Organization that basically, again, would have abrogated our health care policy to this very corrupt organization, which I think is a puppet of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, they have said that they've withdrawn those amendments. Do you really believe that this issue is dead? 
You know, I don't know. Um, I don't have any special insight to that. It's certainly disturbing. The uh, WHO has uh, repeatedly demonstrated its own incompetence on precisely the matters that it pretends to have expertise on. I think we saw this most recently with COVID, but it wasn't it wasn't the uh, first or last example I would I would be willing to bet. But yet again, to return to sort of my original framework here is, yes, we don't want to cede control to the WHO, but I think we need to be careful not to frame by contrast our own national institutions, our own national equivalents as comparatively good or competent because they're not. We've seen the health organizations within the United States completely drop the ball uh, when it comes to COVID and to go all over the place in terms of their formal recommendations, to step out of their bounds in terms of advocating for lockdowns and so forth. And so when you look at organizations like the CDC, I don't know if you know they're that much better, that much worse than WHO. The bottom line is the people who are in charge of all of these institutions, whether the national institutions within America or whether they're these international institutions, ultimately that distinction at this point is a mere formality and everyone who's in control at these institutions hates the American people. They have no interest in American people's health, in their freedom, in their flourishing, in anything. They're all corrupt, and that's what we need to understand in order to move forward productively. You know, great point. Uh, one of the things that I used to say uh, when I was out and about going across Texas was that no elected official has the enumerated power or authority to decide who or what is essential. But yet that is what we saw elected officials making that decision about this business has to close, but the business across the street, of course, you know, if it ended up being a Walmart, McDonald's, an abortion facility, it can stay open. And the other thing is that when you look at these government agencies and responsibilities, I mean, agencies and their responsibilities, they have gotten so far outside of their roles and duties uh, because now we're starting to see ourselves being ruled, not governed. And we have given these government agencies, like the CDC, FDA, ATF, uh, so many of them, this power to rule over us by, through executive order, you know, fiat, what have you. So how can we, as a free people, how can we get that genie back into the bottle? Because right now, uh, I think there's a, a clock that is ticking. Right. Now, I think this is absolutely true, and it's probably the most important thing that we can be thinking about and talking about, how to reconfigure or to appropriate a term favored by our corrupt and illegitimate ruling class. How can we reimagine the institutions that, uh, that govern our daily lives, govern our behavior, and govern the policy responses to such crucial things as uh, COVID and have dropped the ball so dramatically. I think the first step is education, is to understand exactly how incompetent these organizations are, to understand on a granular personnel basis the specific people who pretend to be experts and yet screw up due to their incompetence and corruption and then began to reconfigure the structure of these institutions so that they're more in line with, uh, first of all, 
just an educated policy approach, which we didn't even get during COVID. And second of all, are better aligned to the best interests of the ordinary American people. How do we get to this point? You know, I, I'm, this is something that is really troubling to me where all of a sudden this incredible experiment in self-governance that we got to the point where someone could stand up and say, you as a healthy person has to stay in your house. Uh, you must shut down your business. How do we allow these entities, like you say, within our government to be able to usurp so much of our individual rights, freedoms, liberty and sovereignty? That's a great question. I think there's a natural tendency of bureaucracies toward accumulation. Uh, they're very keen to accumulate power and it's very hard for them to cede power. And so over the course of time, I think you see these bureaucracies grow and irrigate more and more power to themselves to the point that uh, electoral outcomes have really diminishing returns when you compare them to the influence and inertia um, of the bureaucracies of government. Uh, I think that's uh, really a major thing. Another thing is just the scale of things. So, you know, the, the scale of society, uh, when we're talking about maybe democracies in the precise sense of people who actually govern themselves in, in a meaningful and, and not simply formulaic sense, uh, societies were much smaller uh, people were much more, uh, much better educated. There were all of these structures in place in order to cultivate the preconditions to genuine self-government. And I think it's very hard to sustain those preconditions under a circumstance of mass society like what we see now. And so I think there are sort of deeper structural issues that uh, make it very difficult, unfortunately, to really... Um, address the issue at the root level. You know, so many people out there have this mentality and belief that uh, America's in decline and that we cannot uh, turn this ship back around. Uh, do you see it that way or do you see an awakening out there amongst the population? I think that there is an awakening. When I look at all of a sudden people are paying attention to their local level of governance, the school boards especially, is that people are waking up to this. How do you see it? I do think people are waking up, uh, but people are waking up at the same time as the illegitimate ruling class is accelerating its grip on, uh, on control. And so you see two things happening at once. You see a increasingly desperate ruling class grasp for power ever more tightly um, in a manner that pretty much abandons even the pretense that we live in a free society any longer. And at the same time, commensurately, the American people are getting educated. But the question is, as the American people wake up to this, um, how do they ensure that they can have um, the mechanisms, mechanisms in place to translate that education, enlightenment, awakening, whatever you want to call it, into effective action because the regime has done, I think, a pretty good job at implementing bottlenecks in order to prevent those mechanisms from functioning optimally. One of those is simply information distribution channels, censorship, um, 
blocking through various ways the capacity for real life organization and mobilization, setting up sort of uh, inside job type things like, you know, the capital attack, which really demonizes a lot of future attempts at uh, safe and, and, and peaceful political organization. So there's a lot of things that the regime is able to do in order to make it more difficult for people to translate their awakening into effective political action. And so we need to be extremely uh, vigilant and cognizant uh, about that as well. Now, I will tell you something, maybe, you know, this will uh, get some people uh, the hair to raise on the back of the neck. But when you talk about ruling class political elites, I don't think that this has anything to do with an R and a D after your name. I think that both uh, political parties in the United States of America are complicit in this. Uh, I think that it is basically became, has become, uh, you know, two sides of the same coin almost. Uh, would you agree with that assessment? And if so, what can the American people do? And do you think that in some way, shape, form, or fashion, there may be a stronger uh, political organization that will rise up that talks about the restoration of national sovereignty and individual sovereignty in America? That's a good question. And yes, of course, I think to a tremendous degree, there's no meaningful difference between Democrats and Republicans. And also where there is meaningful difference, the system as a whole is designed in such a way as to never really give people what they want. What it is, is the Republicans can screw up in one way and uh, it's just buck passing. They, they blame it on the Democrats. Democrats blame it on the Republicans when really the configuration of the entire system is designed to ensure that the people don't really get what they want in terms of self-government. Um, and so I definitely think there are flaws there. As for whether a kind of uh, a third party, I'm not sure if that's what you were suggesting, but well, something a like- a movement or something along yeah, that lines, well, yeah. Well, I think the Trump movement um, uh, has not been perfect, but I think it has been tremendously effective. And at this point, I do think that probably from a practical standpoint, the most effective thing is to um, is to implement change within the existing party structure. Uh, just empirically looking at the past, I haven't seen anything that's terribly promising um, in terms of third parties as compared to what Trump accomplished, which was sort of a revolution within the party uh, which is an ongoing one. It's far, far from complete. Uh, but so far, I think using the existing infrastructure and reconfiguring it from within uh, is probably the most promising approach from a uh, standpoint of partisan politics. Now, you're, you're very correct in that. And I would look at the American first uh, mantra is really being about American sovereignty, American sovereignty in our economic policy and our energy policy, our national security policy, foreign policy with our border security. Because, again, when you look at what is happening on a border, and this has to do R's and D's. I mean, we have a, a governor here in Texas that's a Republican, and we still have people pouring across the, the border here when the Constitution says exactly what a state can do to protect its sovereignty. So I think that what the American people are going to start looking for is to once again make sure that America is safe and secure and prosperous 
and not ceding or, as you said, abrogating over its power and authority to other ruling bodies. Yep, absolutely. That's extremely important. And it's extremely important that the institutions that are American institutions, the institutions that are not simply American in name only, we need American institutions to actually serve the American people. And that's partially what's incomplete about even mantras like buy American. Well, there are a lot of American companies. I don't need to tell you. I don't probably need to tell your audience. There are a lot of American companies in the Fortune 500 that have done more work to destroy the fabric of America than any foreign uh, company. And so it's not simply enough to support American companies. We need to make sure that American companies are in align with American values. And uh, that's that's an indispensable part of this fight. I no, you bring up a great point because one of the things I have always spoken out about going back to almost 12 years ago when I was in Congress was that when we allowed China to come into the global economic community thinking that they would, that would be a changing of their behavior, all we did was reward a communist regime uh, to allow them to become the tick that impl- implanted themselves into the, the, the global economy and made us so dependent upon them. And now look at what has happened here in the past decade or so. Let me close out by, by asking you this. What is encouraging to you right now uh, when we talk about this issue of sovereignty in America and the awakening? I mean, where do you see this this going in a positive way? And what does it take for the individual citizen to be able to once again restore the foundations and the fabric of the longest running constitutional republic that the world has ever known? Well, that's a great question. And like you said, I think the awakening is real. Uh, the American people, uh, despite the best efforts of the corrupt regime and ruling class to censor information to prevent the American people from understanding just how corrupt the people who control them are. Despite all of this, the information does get out there. It gets out there through alternative media sources, gets out there through my news source, revolver.news and others. And people are really waking up. I think that's tremendously encouraging. And in particular, I think you're seeing a lot of young people who are extremely smart, extremely talented, who maybe they're not woke enough to propel themselves and elevate themselves within the regime, which is sad. It's a tremendous waste of talent. But the silver lining in that is that we're building a critical mass of extremely smart, extremely talented extremely fearless young Americans who understand what's going on and are fed up with it. And these are the people who are going to be a formidable influence in the decades to come. And I think we've, we've only just begun to see the influence of these young, younger, talented people who have gotten a glimpse at just how corrupt and illegitimate and evil the regime really is. Well, Dr. Darren Beatty, I just want to thank you for what you're doing out there. How can people follow you and the work that you're continuing to do? 
Thank you so much. People can follow me at Twitter at Darren J. Beattie, D-A-R-R-E-N-J-B-E-A-T-T-I-E. And most importantly, at revolver.news, where we break huge stories, some of the most important stories in the country, exposing things that uh, really the regime would much rather be left behind the curtain. And we've, do, we've done that a lot over the past month. So I encourage everyone to go to revolver.news, read the exclusives, read our recent pieces on the disinformation industry. If anyone's heard of Nina Jankovic of the Disinformation Governance Board, how she was fired, her dirty little secret, what she was involved in in the past, go to revolver.news to read it. And thank you so much for having me on. It's my pleasure. And I think you and I would agree what we're facing right now. It is purposeful. It's intentional. And it's meant to undermine the sovereignty of these United States of America. God bless you. And thank you so much, Dr. Beatty. Likewise. Thank you, sir. Pleasure. Tim Barton is the president of Wall Builders, a national pro-family organization that presents America's forgotten history and heroes with an emphasis on our religious, moral, and constitutional heritage. Wall Builders has been recognized from coast to coast for his work in education, history, law, and public policy, integrating the elements of biblical faith and morality throughout all aspects of American life and culture. Tim is an ordained minister and has worked in a variety of church staff positions, including as a youth minister, a worship leader, I didn't know you could sing, and assistant pastor. He now spends countless hours in Wall Builders' library of tens of thousands of original documents, and I've seen it. It is quite impressive. Researching the truth of America's founding and exposing the lies regarding our history that currently permeate our society. He consults with numerous state and federal legislators on policy and legislation and speaks to a variety of groups across the nation. Tim graduated from college with a degree in business management and a minor in biblical studies. During college, he mentored youth, working with local youth groups and serving at an orphanage. He worked for several years as a senior counselor at a large youth camp in Hot Springs, Arkansas. He also served as an athletic director, teacher, and coach at a Christian school in Texas. Tim lives nearby here in Weatherford, Texas, with his wife, Gabby, and daughter, Finley. Tim, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Colonel, so glad to be with you. Thank you. Man, let me tell you something. We're talking about the issue of sovereignty Mm -hmm. in this podcast episode. And one of the critical aspects, I mean, we got national sovereignty, but I think we've got to do a better job of understanding individual sovereignty. Yes. And the uniqueness of the United States of America, because I've been to 13, almost 15 different countries, a bunch of combat zones. I have not seen a country that was established on the premise mm-hmm. that the inalienable rights of the individual came from a creator God, Judeo-Christian God. Yep. Our life, our liberty, our property, as John Locke would say, and our pursuit of happiness. So how did we get to the point where individual sovereignty is being so undermined in America? I think the big picture is when when we became a or the intentionality of trying to secularize America, the more yeah. secular America, America becomes, if there is no creator, then there can be no creator given rights. Yes, sir. And that's where we are, where for, for all of human history, there were only two options for nations and societies. And obviously we're having a conversation. You already know this, but hopefully people joining yeah. in, it's informative. For all of human history, you either had as a nation, you had a big government or a big God. And in America, we didn't need a big government because we knew there was a big God. We knew there was a creator who gave rights to man. And government's primary job was to protect those God-given rights. 
But the more secular we've become as a nation, and this is where we've seen the the intentional secularizing of America. Mm-hmm. Certainly, we could go to some liberal Democrat presidents who have been engaged in that. But you can look at the Supreme Court, the, mm-hmm. the progressive era and movement, a lot of things along the way that have, have tried to remove God from the equation. And we now have a society and generation growing up without a, a, a God consciousness, which is why it's no surprising that we're having a hard time identifying male and female, yeah. right? And, and what a family looks like or marriage or anything else, because if there is no God, then, then the, the foundation of human society and civilization begins to crumble. And in America, that's where we were different, is we recognize that our rights don't come from a king or from some authoritarian yeah. Yeah. or you know oligarch, whatever it might be. It, it, it came from a creator. And government's job wasn't to dictate what we could do. It was to protect the rights that God had already given. As you mentioned, John Locke, we could go back to William Blackstone or Montesquieu. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of early political philosophers that influenced the founding fathers, but the foundation was there. They knew there was a God, and they knew, therefore, government needed a very limited role in the lives of people. And for the course of human history, no government took a limited role because anytime someone had power, they wanted to expand their Absolutely. power. Which is what made our nation so unique because even our Constitution was written to limit the ability yes. of the expansion of power in the federal government, which, of course, now the Constitution has largely been thrown out and that's yeah. changed. But I would say where, where, where the foundation of our nation shifted was when we begin to secularize our nation. Because, again, if there is no God, then there can be no God-given rights. Mm-hmm. That's where we are today. You know, and that's interesting because in the monologue, I talked about John Locke and the natural rights theory that said that there is that relationship. And because your rights come from a sovereign God, therefore the individual is sovereign. Your life, your liberty, your property. I talk to people about, you know, this incredible, my favorite little essay here, The Law by Frederick Bastiat, which talks about personality, liberties, and property, and the role and the relationship of the law, mm-hmm. being government, and to, to protect those things for the individual. But you're so right. The secular humanists have done an incredible job of removing God from the marketplace of ideas, the public Mm -hmm. sphere. It's like we no longer have a freedom of religion, but they're dictating a freedom of worship and where you can celebrate these things. How do we restore and get God back? Because I get tired of people saying that, you know, those founders, they really were, you know, into this whole God thing. That is a accusation that certainly is prevalent today. Uh, it's one of the things that at, at Organization Wall Builders, we have more than 100,000 original documents from American history. And mm-hmm. so instead of saying, what did this professor say about the founding fathers? We actually do this novel Go to thing the of founding fathers. going back and reading <laughs> yeah. their documents, which actually brought a couple we can talk about wow. in a little bit. With that being said, if you go back and read their writings, it, it's very difficult to go through their writings and to – to see them secularizing anything when you see them talking about God and the importance of Christianity. When John Adams, for example, said that our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate, the government or any other. And this is where Americans, the disconnect comes in for most people is why why do we need a moral and religious people for our constitution to work? Mm -hmm. Because the American constitution was built on freedom for people. But if you give freedom to immoral people, all they do is immoral things, and therefore freedom doesn't work. You have to have more police officers. You need the military, the National Guard called in. But freedom works if you have the internal moral restraints. And you know the basics of right and wrong. Freedom that compass, works. the true north. That's it. Yeah. 
when, when we know that truth does exist and there is a foundation of morals, but the founding fathers or Blackstone or Locke, many of these individuals, the, the laws of nature, right? Natural law. Yes. God revealed truth in creation. He also revealed truth in God's word. That's why Blackstone said the laws of nature and of nature's God. God revealed it in two ways. You, you, mm-hmm. Even the Apostle Paul in Romans says you can study creation. And you can learn the, even the intricacies that God had revealed in creation, which I, I'm not sure I've totally found that one in creation, but yeah. <laughs> apparently it's there. The reality is, though, is this is what the early philosophers identified, the foundation of recognizing that truth does exist. There is a foundation for truth, and it was upon that foundation that the founding fathers said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Yes. They understood truth existed because they knew there was a God. In fact, this is this is a 1796 printing of George Washington's farewell address. So this wow. is printed when he delivered the farewell address. And in this, George Washington even says that the pillars of our prosperity as a nation— are rooted in religion and morality. He said, in vain would that person claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. So according to George Washington, if you're against religion and morality, you can't even be considered a patriot in America, mm-hmm. which would be a revelation, I think, for most Democrats who feel like the most patriotic thing you can do is try to remove God from the equation. Yes. The founding fathers understood that our nation will only work, freedom only works if there's a, a moral foundation. And that's why the founding fathers, if you, if you go to someone like uh, Benjamin Rush, who was a signer of the Declaration, helped ratify the Constitution, he served in the first three presidential administrations. He actually was one of the founders of the very first abolition society in Pennsylvania. He started the Sunday School Movement in America. He was the most famous medical doctor in American history, arguably, um, up to present time. In the midst of all his accomplishments, one of the things that he did was, under George Washington, because they understood the limitations of the federal government, mm-hmm. that there's only, according to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, there's only about 17 things yes. the federal government's allowed to yes. do. Article 1, Section 8. Correct. Among those limitations, education is not one of the powers of the federal government. And so there was no Department of Education. Mm-hmm. Therefore... It was up to every state, and largely states left it up to the local municipalities, the, the local school districts. That's why we have school boards. That was exactly what it was. They get to determine those things. Benjamin Rush began writing essays, and specifically under George Washington's leadership and administration when he was serving for George Washington, he wrote essays that went throughout all the nation. And it was essays about what schools should be doing to make sure that we're laying a foundation to, to succeed and function well as a nation. One of his more famous essays was called The Bible in Schools. And he gave about a dozen reasons why we had to teach the Bible in schools. And among those reasons, actually, is his conclusion of his essay. He says, I lament if the time comes that we ever cease to teach the Bible in schools. He says, we will spend so much time and money in punishing crimes that could have been prevented had we instructed the youth in the knowledge of the Bible. How prescient. Right? Like, what a novel thought that if, if kids just learn the foundation, the morals of Christianity, and even though I could argue that the vast majority, if not basically every founding father, was a Christian. Now, we can make a few exceptions, and I can identify those. Nonetheless, the vast majority of founding fathers self identified as Christian. Their writings seem to reflect that does seem to be what they believed. With it being said, is when they said that we need to teach the Bible in schools, it wasn't because they're trying to convert every child to Christianity necessarily. Some of them would have been okay with that, but it was because they wanted them to have the moral foundation yeah. that they're, if, if you study world religions, there's no greater moral teacher than Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so when the found, in, actual, in fact, John Adams said he'd studied all religions and none was comparable to Christianity and there were no higher moral teachings than that found in the Bible. Well, this is why they said, let's make sure our kids know the Bible. It was the moral foundation. It wasn't just to learn to become a Christian. It was to learn the morals to function in a free society. 
and this notion that the founding fathers didn't believe in God or Christianity, that's largely argued by people who've never actually studied the founders' original writings. You know, it's interesting that you talked about, you know, George Washington, because it wasn't too long ago that uh, they tried to get his pew removed from the church yes. because it was offensive to people. Uh, how did we get to that point? But what you just talked about now, and I'm sure there are some people from the secular humans, the progressive socialist left that are watching this podcast. Well, they're just pounding their, the tables. Mm -hmm. They're just frothing at the bit because they're saying Tim Barton is talking about something that's a violation of the separation of church and state. Explain to us this misunderstanding about that letter, that concept that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist Convention? There's no doubt about it. So the, the argument we hear a lot today is why we shouldn't have religion in schools or in any kind of public government facility is because of a separation of church and state, which it's worth noting is nowhere in the Constitution. Nowhere. Right? If, if or you, the Federalist Papers. Correct. Yeah. Like if, if you go back when the Bill of Rights was framed, because what people argue is in the First Amendment. Well, the only thing in the First Amendment dealing with religion, there's two religious clauses. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Yes. Or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. As long as the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, nowhere in there does it mention the separation of church and state. Now, people argue, but that's what it meant. Okay, if that's the argument, that that's what they meant by that, all you have to do is go back to the records of Congress when they, and, and this is the very first Congress, when, when George Washington gets sworn in, you have 90 members of the first Congress, and their job is to come up with a Bill of Rights because it was a condition for many states to ratify the Constitution. Uh, many founding fathers were concerned that if we didn't put extra limits on the federal government, yeah. they were going to reach beyond what the Constitution gave them authority to do, which the founding fathers were, of course, correct. <laughs> they were brilliant in their foresight. Mm -hmm. But the, those 90 members of the first Congress did the Bill of Rights. And when they did the Bill of Rights, all you have to do is go back and read the records of Congress where it covers all of their debates. If they intended the First Amendment to be the separation of church and state, surely they would have argued that all over, or at least mentioned it somewhere along the way. There's not a single mention of the phrase separation of church and state. That phrase doesn't come into common American vernacular in that idea of tone until, as you mentioned, Thomas Jefferson was president. And early on in his presidency, there was a group of Baptists from Danbury, Connecticut, mm -hmm. and they wrote to Jefferson. And part of the reason was uh, John Adams had been a Congregationalist much of his life, yeah. and the Congregationalist was a denomination that was very large, uh, considered to be very influential. And the Baptists, at, at that time in America— when the, when the founding fathers had the Constitution done, there is no federal, there's no national religion. However, nine of the original 13 colonies had state religions. Mm -hmm. And for those state religions, there were places like in Virginia that were, Virginia was Anglican, and they were very, very strict with who could do what and who couldn't do what. In fact, in some of these states, there was large persecution of denominations in the state that weren't part of the official state denomination. Yeah. That's where Baptist was in a congregational space. And that goes back to King Henry VIII. That's Very what we did much. not want to see replicated here in America. Very much. And, and this was really all of Europe. Everybody that had a king, the king would choose their favored denomination. I mean, we know them as religions, but yes. it, whether it be Catholic or Anglican or Lutheran, all of those today would fall under the umbrella of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And this is also important for the discussion when some people look back and they go, well, but, but you're saying no establishment religion, that means no Christianity. No, no, no. The founding fathers were not anti-Christianity. That's they a were, faith. Right. They were anti-saying you have to be part of the Anglican church. You have to be yes. part of the Catholic church. You have to be part of the Lutheran church. You can't force people to be part of one denomination, but they were not into secularizing federal government. They just didn't want to endorse and require you to go to one denomination. With that being said, the Danbury Baptist write Thomas Jefferson a letter, and Jefferson writes them a response back. And, and the Danbury Baptist letter was, we're concerned if the Congregationalists essentially 
get in control, we might lose our religious liberty. Jefferson writes them back, and it's interesting, he writes them back on a Friday, and he says, you don't need to worry about losing your religious liberty. He says, the federal government can do nothing to infringe on your liberty. He says, in fact, the federal Congress, with the Bill of Rights, erected an eternal wall of separation, so this wall's up, between church and state, to protect your religious liberty is what he argues in his letter. So the wall of separation is to keep the government out of church business. It wasn't to secularize the government. But the reason this becomes significant, he wrote that letter on a Friday. On Sunday, two days later, he was at church. But what's significant is where was he going to church? In the U.S. Capitol building. Because when he was vice president, there were two chaplains, House and Senate. And they went to Congress. And this is in the records of Congress. They went to Congress and said, guys, you have this amazing building. And the Constitution says that we can't do any government work here in this building on Sunday. But this is the most amazing building in Washington, D.C. Could we use it for a church? And they had to get the approval of the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate. The Speaker of the House was Theodore Sedgwick. The President of the Senate was the Vice President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. Theodore Sedgwick and Thomas Jefferson both approved for the chaplains to hold church in the U.S. Capitol building. When Jefferson became president, all eight years of Jefferson's presidency, he actually attended church at the U.S. Capitol. There are not only records from Thomas Jefferson he did that. There's actually records from some of his political opponents who talked about how faithfully he attended church. Now, this, again, is very important for the understanding because if Jefferson is writing the separation of church and state the way it's understood today, why would Jefferson be going to church at the Capitol building? When you study the Founding Fathers' lives and their writings, what you realize is we have distorted this phrase so far out of context based on who they were and what they did. George Washington did presidential prayer proclamations. Thomas, or John Adams did presidential prayer proclamations. Thomas Jefferson did not, although James Madison did. And it's interesting, why did Jefferson not? Jefferson, as an anti-federalist, said the federal government doesn't have the power to tell the people to pray because that's not one of the 17 enumerated powers, which is a brilliant thought. Yep. But as governor of Virginia, he did do prayer proclamations. So, yeah. so even Jefferson did governor prayer proclamations. He just said a president can't do that because they don't have that authority. Nonetheless, this whole notion of separation of church and state, it's not rooted in actual historic fact. Uh, the change of the phrase happens in uh, the Board of Education decision, um, 1940. 1940 or 19, somewhere in the early 1940s. Um, Hugo Black's the one who delivered the decision. And he said that we've always applied Jefferson's phrase. And and by the way, up to that point, every time the U.S. Supreme Court argued a First Amendment case and someone invoked separation of church and state, they said, well, let's go back and read the letter and see what it says. This was the first time someone invoked the phrase without the full reading of the letter. And so it was used out of context. He said, Jefferson, or this, this phrase from Jefferson, we've always applied it to the free exercise clause, meaning Congress can't stop the free exercise. He says, I think we should be applying it to the establishment clause, that the federal government needs to make sure that nobody can establish a religion. And that's where today people say, well, if kids are praying in public school or praying at their graduation, they're trying to establish Christianity as a religion, as if they have the power to do that. Yeah. And it's also worth noting the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law. The only limitations, according to the Constitution, is that Congress can't pass a law. Presidents can do what they want. (laughs) Individual congressmen on their own capacity can do what they want. They can't pass a law. Yeah, I used to go to the Congressional Bible Study when I was a member of Congress. And where did they hold it? They held it there in the United States Capitol. So you bring up a great point when you talk about the whole separation of church and state thing and creating a wall so that government could not infringe upon that very first liberty. And we just saw the case of uh, Coach Kennedy Mm -hmm. out in the state of Washington. Just by himself, kneeling after a football game, didn't coerce anyone to do it, didn't tell anyone, didn't pronounce it, didn't use a microphone, but yet all of a sudden people said that that was a violation. I think when we look at individual sovereignty, look at what happened in COVID, where all of a sudden the government came down and said the churches have to 
be closed. Mm -hmm. When government came down and said that you could not even come together in the parking lot of the church and sit in your car and tune in and listen to the, the, the preacher give a, right. give a sermon. And in the state of Kentucky, they were going to take down people's you know, license plate and arrest them. Let's talk about this secular, secularization of America because I believe that the progressive socialist left, they are making their ideological agenda into a religion. Yes. And if you don't kowtow and bow down to their ideological agenda, then you are persecuted and prosecuted, being it the same-sex marriage, being it the gender uh, you know, dysphoria issue, right. being the climate change issue, all of these things out there. Which, to me, that's the real violation of yes. separation of church and state. So one of the major moves we're seeing right now, politically speaking, but, but really it's, it's, it's not political in the sense of Republican and Democrat. It, mm -hmm. It's what, what Ronald Reagan said, his scale, right? It's not left and right. It's, it's the freedom scale, Yes. right? And what we're seeing is people that are arguing we need more freedom and people saying the government should have total control. So it's not left and right. It's, it's the freedom scale of are we free or are we a slave in this capacity that freemen have rights – if the government controls all the rights, you're not a free man. No. And this is And if they define the rights. Correct. Which is what we see happening. Big time. And it's where if you go back to even the Obamacare decision when Nancy Pelosi, right from the floor of the House of Representatives, says that Congress has just given the American people the right to health care. And and people cheered for this. And you're going, wait a second, no, no, if, if government now is the one who is the author of rights, if government is the one giving you rights, they're also going to take your rights away, which is what, mm -hmm. you know, just recently we saw with dictator uh, Trudeau up in Canada. Oh, yes. Right? With, oh, hey, no more pistols. Yeah. You know, that that's, I mean, this is a very slippery slope when we start saying, hey, for the good of the people, there's some rights you need to give up. And the founding fathers acknowledge, and this is something, I mean, even old political philosophers, they study, they acknowledge there's a difference between a man living alone in the woods and a man living in civilization. Because in civilization, there's certain things you agree to give up. I am a country boy, and yeah. growing up in the country on a farm, on a ranch, there was nobody around us. And if you're a boy out in the country and you need to go to the bathroom, you just find a tree and you take care of it. Well, if you're a soldier, you do the same. You know? <laughs> yeah. But if you are in the city park with lots of people around, that, do that. that's frowned on, right? Yes. You're not supposed to do that. There are certain levels of freedom that we agree in, in civilization that we are, are going to relinquish on some level. However, what is never supposed to be relinquished, as you're pointing out, is a level of individual sovereignty. And when the government – and this is where we can go even to back to progressive education. Super interesting mm -hmm. when progressives in the early 1900s are in charge of education. And some of their thoughts where Woodrow Wilson had a statement that is just shocking. He said the goal of university should be to make a child as unlike their father as possible. Isn't that incredible? So even back then, they're, yeah. like he's saying what used to be the quiet part. Like we're saying this out loud. It's like, yeah, we don't want kids to grow up to be like their parents because parents aren't as woke or aren't as far along the scale as we want them to be. In the midst of this, when progressives took over education, one of the other things that is, is known to be true is they recognize that we need people who are better factory workers. We need people who can just go and do their job and do what they're told. So they begin changing education to produce people who are just going to take orders as opposed to people who are strategic, critical thinkers, problem solvers. Absolutely. And you see the change in education where it used to be, if you look at early education books, all the way through the early 1900s. First of all, there was no such thing as high school because – when you're 11, 12, 13, right, it's time for you to grow up. You, yeah. you, you can be an apprentice. You, now, if you want to go to university, you could, but it was time for you to grow up and become an adult on some level. And that progressive said, we need kids for longer because there's more we want them to know, meaning we need to program yes. them a little bit longer. And that's the, the, the concern because it's the pre-K now 
all the way up through the, the, yes. the formative years of college. And of course, now if college education is free, you can just stay there for as long as you right. want. And so it's an undermining of parental sovereignty. Yes. Yes. And you see that happening now. I mean, even here in the state of Texas, where we have certain uh, teachers and, and school districts, they're saying, you know, if you're having these feelings or whatever, don't tell your parents. Right. C come to us and we'll make sure your parents don't know. We'll help you get medication. I mean, it's crazy what, what teachers are doing to undermine parents' authority and to back up when progressives are, are, are shifting the, the, the process of education. One of the very interesting things is all, all testing up until the progressive era was all done really in this longhand essay form mm -hmm. where you were asked questions and you had to tell the whole story an mm -hmm. explanation. Now math was different, but also math was very different because you don't even have to show your work. You had to come up with the right answer and you could do the work in your head. Yeah. And now we're saying, no, we want to show all your work. And it's not just so you do it the correct way. It's so you do it the way we told you to, yes. but this is where you have introduced multiple choice or true faults or fill in the blank. Cause now it's not about, can you problem solve? Can you critical think? Are you a thinker and learner? It's, can you repeat? Can you regurgitate? Are you what a mile of swimming? Right. Are, are you gullible? Can you memorize and do what we tell you to do? And this is what we're seeing in society where, I mean, one of the things that COVID should have been very clear for a lot of people is when they're saying, hey, don't mask, wear the mask, right? The vaccine will prevent you from getting it. Okay, it won't prevent you, but you won't die. Okay, you might die, but you're better off. Like they continue to change the yes. goalposts in the story, but people are still buying into it because they've gone through this process of we're just going to do whatever we're told because we trust big brother. We trust the government. Clearly, they've never read 1984. They might Absolutely. have a different, different perspective of it, but it is very much where we see in this progressive camp, they are teaching people to be dependent on the government. They're teaching people just to do what they're told. It used to be that if we were critical thinkers, right now there's, there's studies that show that 75% of college students support socialism on some level, think it's better than capitalism. How in the world do you come to that conclusion? Because they're not critical thinkers. Because yeah. anybody, anybody who wants money, who wants freedom, which is every college student, they would like to have money, like sure. to have freedom. All you have to do is ask them to name the socialist country that after they became socialist, it increased personal prosperity and personal sovereignty or freedom. Yeah. It's never increased freedom. And the amazing thing is that we have so many that are willing to surrender their individual sovereignty for collective subjugation. Yes. And that's amazing. Now, Correct. the second book that you brought here, because I want to get into that, you know, when we talk about the Constitution, because mm -hmm. it wasn't an easy thing. So you had John Jay, Alexander Hamilton and uh, James, Madison. James Madison. They got together. Uh, Madison operated under the pen name Publius. And they put together those Federalist Papers. Yes. What does the Federalist Papers tell us about individual sovereignty? Well, and, and let me add, too, as we talk about the Federalist Papers, this is an early printing of the Federalist Papers, early 1800s. What's also worth noting is the Federalist Papers are a very difficult read. Hmm. For a, a, a modern person going through this, it's a little bit yeah, like you mentioned. Yeah, because the failure of our public education system. <laughs> correct. <laughs> you mentioned even John Locke. If you go back and read the two treatises of yes. government, that, I mean, that's that's some meaty stuff to yeah. get in. Now, it's it's really brilliant. Some great thoughts in there. Same thing with the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers were written for the uneducated farmers of New York, right? So this was written for the ignorant, uneducated people, and today we can barely read it, which says a lot about education going back to that again. But in the Federalist Papers, what 
what was going on is as the Constitution is written, it's finished in uh, September of 1787, and then it has to go be ratified yeah. by right, the nine states to then take full effect for the 13, uh, so we can become the United States of America under the federal Constitution. And New York was a state that's trying to figure out, are we going to ratify this or not? There were many founding fathers who were very concerned about the Constitution because they said it doesn't put enough limitations on the federal government. And we know if you give people power and there's not enough limitations, we know what they're going to do with power, which is fundamentally true. And we see that happening now. Absolutely. Where some of the arguments from some of the Federalists were we we don't have to put additional limitations because we actually wrote in the Constitution they can only do what we told them to do. And people like George Mason, who actually helped write the Constitution, yeah. said if we don't put a, a Bill of Rights, which is actually an interesting thought, it's a negative, it's a list of negative rights that these are things the federal government can never can touch. touch. The Constitution says here's the very limited things the government can do. But that's why also in the Ninth and Tenth Amendment of the Bill of Rights, they said, uh, let's also clarify, right? The, yeah. the Constitution says federal government can do this, but there's also rights. Ninth Amendment talks about the rights of the individual. There's rights yep. the individual has that we didn't list. Doesn't mean those don't belong to the individual. The Tenth Amendment was that everything that's not explicitly in the Constitution given Default to— Default goes to the states and right. the people. And, and this is where they're, again, acknowledging this notion that there's a sovereignty and there's a limitation on government. All that to be said is the these are the Federalist Papers. They're the people in favor of the Constitution. And part of their argument was, guys— the Constitution is not taking away your liberty. It's giving us a government that's going to function. Because at this point, they've been under the Articles of Confederation, yes. which was drafted in Very 1777. Weak. Oh, the really good synopsis, it gave the federal government power to say whatever they wanted, but no power to do anything. Yes. Because, for example, in, in 1777, when the Articles of Confederation have been drafted, this is the middle of the American Revolution, the, the founding fathers are living according to the Articles of Confederation with the inner workings of the states. And there was a group of individuals that came to Congress saying, hey, guys, we used to import Bibles from over in England, and now we have a war. We can't import these Bibles. We'd like to have Bibles imported. And Congress, this is a great idea. They said, we approve importing 20,000 Bibles from Holland or some friendly nation. We give permission and approval to do that. And they said, well, who's going to pay for it? And they said, we don't know because we don't have the power to tax. Yeah. So, so literally, they could give approval. They just had no power to do anything, which is why there were many founding fathers who very early on, including George Washington, Noah Webster, Alexander Hamilton, many noted founding fathers who said, we need a new constitution. This, this Articles of Confederation is not going to work. In the Federalist Papers, that's where Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, James Madison are explaining, guys, the constitution is what we need to be able to have power to function, to work as a nation. But they identify that you're not going to lose any power from the federal government because it's it's built on this notion of we the people. Yeah. The power is inherent, and, and it's what the Federalist paper says, the power is inherent and intrinsic in the people, yep. which means the federal government has no power that we don't allow them to have. Now, they've usurped a lot of power today. Absolutely, they have. But part of the reason they've usurped it is because the American people have been so dumbed down with our education system. Most Americans we have— surrendered it. Well, for sure. Most Americans have a hard time even identifying the three branches of government. And if you can't even name the three branches of government, you for sure don't know the role of the three branches. Mm -hmm. And most Americans don't know anything about the Constitution, that there are seven articles, and then the first and second, we, we don't know what they deal with. Yeah, and we think that the Supreme Court can make law. Correct, which is a very common thought. This notion that this, or even this idea that, that, that we have three co-equal branches, a very common thought. The Federalist Papers, there are several interesting articles in the Federalist Papers where, one, these guys say that the legislative branch is 
it necessarily and, and by process will predominate what happens because they're right. the ones who draft and create the law. So they say the legislature is the strongest of the branches. And you read the Constitution and they is the most powerful. They're the ones who have all the power. Absolutely. Relatively speaking, right? Because the president has power over the executive branch, but that's it. He, yeah. he can't do anything else, even the executive orders. When it comes to the judges in the Federalist Papers, they say that the judiciary is beyond comparison the weakest. So even this idea we have three co-equal branches or we know that the Supreme Court decide, actually all three branches have the ability to read and interpret the Constitution. That, that, that's not how you determine constitutionality. And that's why the founding fathers were brilliant in setting up these checks and balances, yes. recognizing, hey, you know what? The Supreme Court might get it wrong sometimes. Historically, they absolutely have gotten it wrong many times, yeah. as has every branch, which is why there was checks and balances set up with it being said. This is where, even again, the Federalist Papers talked about that the, the we the people, the rights of the people, it's inherent and intrinsic, and the federal government actually recognizes and protects those rights, which then is further enshrined when you get to the Bill of Rights, recognizing there's so many rights, and the federal government can never infringe on our right to speak or our, our religious beliefs mm-hmm. and practices, our rights of self-defense or private property. It goes down this list, and then Amendment 9 says, and there's a lot more that's not included, but here's some of the ones that are. Yeah, so... Here we are today. A lot of concerns. Mm-hmm. What do you see going forward as the solutions to make sure that we restore the understanding of individual sovereignty in the United States of America? And also, how can the body of Christ be a part of that? That's, that's a great question. So I, I think actually there's some overlap and connection with a lot of these. The reason our nation was so strong is because the church was the foundation of our nation, mm-hmm. ultimately. I mean, you look in communities, obviously there were schools and communities, but it was, it was churches and communities. If you would go back to the American Revolution, for example, it's super interesting that even the revolution so largely was influenced by churches and communities and by pastors leading those churches. If you go to Lexington Green, for example, yeah. where the shot around the world happened, there. Yeah. right? The 73 men who opposed the more than 700 British, they were all from the church of the Reverend Jonas Clark. It was his deacon, Captain John Parker, who was the one who said, right, if, if they mean to have war, let it begin here. Right? We're not going to fire unless fired upon. But if they mean to have war, let it begin here. Th- this is a deacon in the church. All the men are from the church. It literally was pastors laying the foundation for liberty. It was pastors leading this notion of biblical morality and foundation. And if our nation is going to get back on track— we have to get back to a place that we identify that truth does exist. The founding father said, right, we hold these truths to be self-evident. If there is no truth, we will not be able to function as society. Uh, you're just talking about old white slave owners, right? Well, no, sir, I'm not. Yeah. Although, obviously, that's the accusation today. One of the things that is, is, is so missing from the conversation is when Woodrow Wilson, and go back early 1900s, Woodrow Wilson in 1902 was a, a professor, and he wrote a five-volume history set came out in 1902. It was called History of the American People, and he went from uh, the beginning of America up to their present time in 1902. In this five-volume history set, he removed every single black person from American history. Yeah. So there's no mention of Frederick Douglass, who was photographed more times than Abraham Lincoln. Booker right? T. Washington. Or, or George Washington Carver, who were yeah. very famous people even at that time. And yet in his book, he did say that black people do exist. He had very racist derogatory names for them. And then he put pictures in and the pictures he put in these books, and really it's, it's volume four is where he covers this in, in a little more detail, is pictures from this uh, Neanderthal phase of the evolutionary thought where it goes from goo to you. And he says, here's the black race. The reason all that's significant, when he becomes president, uh, he shows the very first ever film in the White House. Birth of the Nation, the Ku Klux Klan. Correct. He gave it two viewings, was a recruiting film for the KKK. 
but he becomes the hero of the progressives. The progressives say, yes. we, we need to right, use this guy, and, and he's our inspiration. They took his five-volume history set, and it became the standard for social studies for public schools in America. So public schools, there were no black heroes studied anymore. Right? You come to the civil rights era, and you have MLK. And so today, right, Black History Month, there's about five or six, seven or eight black heroes we know. But none of them really go back to study the actual history where back to the American Revolution, for example, people yep. think, well, this is white people. OK, in fairness, the vast majority of America was white at that time, but it's because it was Western Europeans who were coming to this land by yep. and large. And the American Revolution was Western Europeans breaking away from the king of England. So there was obviously way more white people involved in the equation. However... That's not to say it was only white people involved. We didn't talk about Christmas addicts. Oh, that's where I'm going. Yeah. Right? Washington had 76 generals. 28 of them were from foreign nations. But so John Adams, at the end of the Revolution, 1816, he wrote a letter, or maybe 1818. Uh, he wrote a letter to a young man talking about the, uh, the foundation of America. And he says that there was not a moment more important to the foundation of America. It wasn't the, the shot around the world, Lexington Green. It wasn't the battle at Concord Bridge. It wasn't uh, the battle of Bunker Hill. It wasn't even the victories at Saratoga, Yorktown. He says the most significant moment in the revolution, what laid the spark for the foundation of the revolution was when the first blood was shed at King Street. Now, King Street's the Boston Massacre, yeah. right? And, and this is John Adams saying that's the most pivotal moment for the American Revolution. Well, who's the first person killed in the Boston Massacre? Christmas Addicts. Christmas Addicts, right? A, a black patriot. Yes. One of my favorite heroes in the American Revolution, you can go to the last major battle about of Yorktown, mm -hmm. was a black patriot, James Armistead. First James Bond. Correct. He's the first double spy in American yeah. history. Yeah. He was a spy in Cornwallis' camp, literally in Cornwallis' tent. He's the one who found out Cornwallis was moving with several thousand men to Yorktown. He got word to Lafayette, who got word to Washington. There's actually two letters from Lafayette to Washington. People can get online and read this, where Lafayette talks about, I've got this spy who's the best spy of all my spy ring, which also it's worth noting. Lafayette had a spy ring to, to spy on, on the British movement, but specifically to track the movement of the British officers. His spy ring was made up predominantly of black patriots because Lafayette knew these black patriots are going to have the best opportunity strategically yeah. to pretend to be escaped slaves going to the camp. However, almost everybody who worked in the spy ring was not former slaves or were not slaves at the time. These were free black men who were fighting for the cause of liberty, as was Crispus Attucks, by the way. But James Armistead literally is the guy credited with the intelligence that led to the victory that ended the American Revolution. The American Revolution started with the death of a black patriot yes. and was won because the intelligence work of a black patriot. So, so you can't even tell the story of the revolution properly if you don't include the role of the black patriots along the way. But today, right, we're told, no, they were all these racist founding fathers. One of the things significant as well about the, the, the founding fathers is in the original draft of the Declaration, Thomas Jefferson, he's listing all the reasons we want to separate from the king, all the grievances, yes. the longest grievance he lists, and you know this, yep. the longest grievance he lists was a grievance against the slave trade and against slavery as a whole. And one of the things he acknowledged was that the king, every time one of their colonies tried to pass an anti-slave trade or anti-slavery law, the king had vetoed those laws. The king actually had forced slavery on them where they didn't want the slave trade, they didn't want slavery, and, and the king was enslaving these. And Jefferson, in full, bold letters, says he, the king was enslaving these men. And it, that's worth noting that he says these are men, and not just says they're men. This is one of the only places in the Declaration that it's not in cursive, and it's the only place that's in full caps apart from the title United States of America. Incredible. So Jefferson is clearly identifying th these are obviously human beings that this atrocity is happening to. And people fail to recognize that was one of the problems that Americans had with the king. The reason that didn't appear in the final draft of the declaration, there were two colonies, South Carolina and Georgia, Absolutely. that opposed it. But 11 colonies were in favor of it. And what's more significant,
significant is when we separated from the king, where the king had been vetoing laws that these colonies were passing, that many of those states took up some of the laws that had been vetoed and they passed them so much so that every single northern colony began passing laws to abolish slavery. And by 1804, every single colony had passed laws for the abolition of slavery. New York was pretty much the last holdout. Nearly every state was long before New York. So really by 1790, almost every Northern state had abolished slavery again, with the exception of like a New York that was a holdout. The reason that's significant is people look today and go, they they were all these racist slave owners. The vast majority of the founding fathers came out against slavery, but because we don't know their stories today, people have no idea. That's the key thing, because I believe that individual sovereignty will be restored once we restore true education. Yes. Where can people follow the great work of Wall Builders, Tim? Wallbuilders.com is the best place to go. We have a book called The American Story that does a lot of this history, starting with Columbus going to the end of slavery in America, telling what we consider a more honest story, where America is not a perfect nation. In fact, America has had very sinful, wicked, evil moments along the way. But the story of America is very unique in that it's a story of how a perfect God used imperfect people and did really special things to advance liberty, to advance freedom, to advance equality faster and sooner than virtually any other nation in the world. 246 years. It's an incredible story. My people suffer for lack of knowledge. And hopefully America will not suffer the loss of individual sovereignty. But it'll be because of you, your dad, giving my regards, and the work you're doing at Wall Builders. Tim, thank you. Colonel West, thank you so much. God bless you. You as well. We continue to talk about this issue of sovereignty. And I think it's always important that we look at not just sovereignty here in America, but we look at this issue from the lens of other countries or people that have uh, interactions with other other countries. And so we're joined right now by Matthew Tierman, and he is an investigative journalist, a political commentator. He is also on the board of Project Veritas. And the important thing is that he spends a lot of his time in Europe, uh, a lot of his time over in Eastern Europe, which is very critical. I think we can learn a lot from the Eastern Europeans. And he just spoke at uh, CPAC Eastern Europe, if I'm correct, over in Hungary. Welcome, Matt. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, Colonel West. You know, I was talking earlier in the monologue about the European Union and how initially it was supposed to be about uh, creating this trading platform, this trading block for the European nations. But now all of a sudden we see how they have usurped the the sovereignty of those nations. So what do you see happening over there, especially when you look at these new countries like Poland and Hungary, who just got a taste of freedom and sovereignty themselves? Well, your uh, your take is exactly correct. Uh, the EU, the European Union, which came together uh, philosophically after World War II, was created under the predicate of the free movement of goods, people, services, and capital, which sounds like a great idea. You know, you break down the the mercantilist barriers that had defined Europe for so many centuries and both hindered economic growth as well as led to all sorts of conflagrations. And coming out of World War II, where the continent was so decimated, they also wanted to backdoor control uh, the mechanisms of industrial warfare. They really started to regulate uh, the, the creation and the economic trade of coal and steel. And so this was sort of what they were already planning in the 40s, and they were able to build it out over two generations, mostly through uh, French 
uh, French philosophers and German economic interests coming together and culminating in the, in the European Monetary Union in 99-2000 with the introduction of the euro, uh, which was a really uh, poorly thought through idea economically because each of the, the member countries had their own central banks. Mm -hmm. uh, but they wanted to harmonize the policymaking, broadly speaking, uh, because they believed that, you know, individual nations, nation state sovereignty, the Westphalian world order that actually had helped Europe continue to to expand and flourish and innovate and compete against one another, uh, they thought that was an anachronism. And now that they went to the 20th century, the modern age, and after World War II, they were capable of becoming the, uh, the, the, the chess masters. They could move the pieces around the board better than national populations with their electorates choosing their leaders uh, in, in the sort of classical Republican and democratic way that uh, the Western tradition has birthed us. Now, if we could just explain to the uh, the viewers the Treaty of Westphalia, because if I'm correct, that came out of the uh, Napoleonic Wars. No, it was before. So the Treaty okay. of Westphalia, uh, 1648. Yep. Uh, it was the European nations, uh, especially on the continent, uh, who had been fighting. Empires were, you know, building, and then they would fight. They would destroy each other, and they came up with this treaty. Uh, where and this was really out of uh, the Holy Roman em Empire and Germany and Italy and all these sort of duchies and city states, and they sent their uh, their emissaries and they codified uh, the start of, of sort of modern Western civilizational diplomacy. That instead of going to war immediately, well, let's create some sort of diplomatic channel that we could uh, we we might be able to ameliorate crises. Uh, and it didn't really initially work. Uh, communications were not great. It came to a head in 1815 after uh, that was when, after the Napoleonic uh, uh, battles and, and Spain, France, Germany and England all fighting each other for the previous century uh, without fail. Uh, in, the tr in the Congress of Vienna in 1815, they really set up a diplomatic court that was based on the on the Westphalian Treaty. And I wrote a large article about this uh, in the American Mind, Claremont's website, uh, Go Westphalian, Young Man, which really breaks breaks down the history of the treaty and how it impacted Europe's development and the, the Western civilizational growth. Now, right now, we, we just saw the World Economic Forum, and of course, we know about the International Monetary Fund. How do those entities uh, affect this aspect of national sovereignty? Because some of the things that I heard coming out of the World Economic Forum last week were very troubling and disconcerting. Yeah, every year they're troubling and disconcerting. Yeah. Thankfully, paying more attention to it. I mean, this is the elite of the elite, the revolving door of NGOs, big media, big business, and, and you know, capitalism kind of run amok, open borders capitalism, uh, and the political class. And they all get together, and the, the elite of the elite, and they, they really want to mastermind the development of the world. And it's, it's the World Economic Forum is obviously uh, very well known, and, and there's all sorts of things online about uh, the Bilderberg Group and the Trilateral Commission, and they all have sort of the same uh, mentality, which was which is supranational governance, I call it supranational, so above national. So, you know, we, we obviously have the UN uh, and all these political organizations. The EU is a great example of it continentally in Europe, where it's taken almost 30 nations, 27 member nations. They're trying to expand again and add more nations from the Baltics and Central and Eastern Europe and, and, and create, you know, a system in place where accountability through national elections uh, is reduced uh, and they get to sort of move the chess pieces around the board, global economic policy, tax policy. The WHO is a great example. Health policy. We saw how they were 
hijacked by the Chinese Communist Party uh, when we when we saw the uh, start of the pandemic. And the pandemic is a great example. It, it, it dovetails so much with what the World Economic Forum has put forward in starting in, in January 21 with the Great Reset, that they should take this opportunity of this sort of worldwide volatility coming out of the pandemic. And now they should use that as a mechanism to sort of reorganize and reorder things. And it, that mentality, that order they want to create is more centralized through these harmonizing entities that ultimately have very little accountability. They're derivative to sort of po the popular electorate. You know, we elect our heads of state, our representatives in national parliaments and in Congress, and that the elections create some sort of accountability. But when you have a derivative of that, now those people who are put in charge are usually of the global left. Uh, then they want to then appoint people to the UN, the WHO, and remove the electorate's ability of holding them accountable, of checking them and checking their powers. And when they grow their powers, uh, it makes it that much harder to fight back on a national populist basis. Which, and we're seeing the reactionary forces uh, come, to, uh, come to a head uh, because of this. Brexit, Trump, uh, yeah, Poland and Hungary uh, leading the charge in Europe, in the European Union from within uh, to say, you know, you can't tell us that we have to open our borders to third world migrants, economic migrants under the under some sort of uh, leftist fantasy of human rights. While we don't have the welfare systems to pay for, moreover, we have somewhat homogenous nations, uh, very rooted in, in Christian uh, in Christian civilization. We do not want you know tons of Somalians, Eritreans, uh, Syrians, wherever coming in because it might not work for our society. And especially coming out of communism, these countries know what far off Mandarin bureaucrats who tell them what to do by dicta and fiat can do to their quality of life on the ground. So they're pushing back, and there's a lot of reactionary pendulum shifts. Thankfully. Yeah, you just spoke, if I'm correct, CPAC Hungary. And what do you see? You talk about Poland, you talk about Hungary, you talk about the Eastern European nations that have now gotten that taste of freedom and really getting that taste of national sovereignty. And they don't want to uh, see it uh, usurped and they don't want to abrogate it to this, you know, large body politic like the EU. What's the sentiment there of their elected officials? What's the sentiment there of the people in these nations to protect and hold on to their sovereignty? So in the EU, you've got a, uh, a sort of a caucusing group of four countries called the Visegrad, Hungary, Poland, Czech Republic, Czechia, and Slovakia. And they're sort of the, the bulwark, uh, the Baltics to a, uh, to a lesser extent, because they're so small, a million and a half people each, give or take, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. And the Balkans are economically still catching up, and some of them have joined, like Slovenia, some are in the process. Uh, so you've got Central and Eastern Europe, and all these countries have come out of communism. So they know what freedom usurpation looks like. Uh, and they saw, they wanted the, you know, Poland ascended in 2004. They were very, very happy to ascend. It was a way, you know, 15, 20, 20 years plus of after, you know, exiting the Soviet Union to really become Western and see their economies grow and converge on Western uh, lifestyles, Western uh, quality of life. Uh, but after 10 years in the EU, when they realized that they were being, uh, hindered from their own control of their of their eco economies, countries, uh, things like their judiciaries, which is a big issue that still persists in both Hungary and Poland. Uh, the way they uh, manage their their medias and state-owned enterprises, their double standards, the way Germany does it, uh, because it's so you know it's so much part of the fabric of the control of the EU and its left. Uh, but Poland is cons Catholic conservative, uh, so everything became a over the last uh, ten years an attack by Brussels 
Brussels and Strasbourg, the, the, the parliamentary seats of the European Union, and Berlin, which is essentially de facto controller of the European Union because of the economic might of the German economy, being the largest trading party of almost every EU member. Uh, and they were really putting pressure on uh, on the Central European nations, and the Central European nations start fighting back. You also had concurrent uh, what happened in Greece. Uh, you yeah. had an economic crisis of a very overlevered economy, an economy that has been, uh, you know, overlevered since time immemorial, and got a freebie, a free pass on that sort of uh, economic, uh, uh, really just bad economy. I mean, it's a very, very weak economy, very low growth, uh, and very, very saddled with debt. And it got a free pass when it got into the EU and adopted the euro. Uh, because it was able to trade everything into a, a, a currency that represents more wealthy economies. Uh, and then it came to a head with the Greek debt crisis, which was somewhat resultant from the global crisis of 08, 09. It, it really re sort of reached its apotheosis in 10, 11, 12. And then the EU came in and forced austerity on the people, uh, deposed its government and put in its own unelected technocrats. Uh, and then after Greece, the same thing happened in Italy. Uh, and so the sort of and that also helped precipitate Brexit. So, I mean, you know, history is sort of these confluence of events, just like Napoleon at Waterloo. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of things happen. A lot of dominoes, uh, you know, drop to then create the outcome that then transpires. Uh, but all these things came to a head. And now Central and Eastern Europe, which is uh, EU members, pushing back quite hard. And then in Western Europe, you've got these sovereigntist movements. These are a lot of the people I work with uh, in Europe, uh, all across the continent. Vox in Spain, uh, Front National and uh, Zamor's New Party in France, AFD in Germany, uh, Lega and Fratelli in Italy, Swedish Democrats in Sweden. And they are looking to go back to, to sovereigntist European roots where they've not devolved their ultimate powers of controlling their their countries to Berlin and, and Brussels and Strasbourg. Uh, and I think it's healthy. And of course, they're immediately painted or they're always painted in the mainstream European press, the French and German press, Der Spiegel, uh, Le Monde in France, uh, as racist xenophobes, all because they want something as simple as border enforcement, uh, which is really the most elemental, fundamental issue. Uh, it's, you know, do we control our borders? Do we control who comes in or does the bureaucracy that is far away from here, led by people who have, you know, armed retinues uh, protecting them and in gated communities, they get to tell us what our city should look like for the next, you know, many generations. And, you know, this is only, this is maybe the third or fourth inning of this. We have a lot more, uh, I think, sovereigntist reactionary pendulum shift back uh, that's occurring. I think we're right in the midst of it, but there's a lot more that's going to play out over these next two or three cycles. These sovereigntist parties are strengthening across Europe, which no. I'm working happy about. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's a good transition point to come across to the United States of America and talk about our national sovereignty. And of course, our border, which is absolutely wide open. I live here in Texas and the drug, the human, the sex trafficking crisis, the, uh, the gangs and everything that is coming across. And I find it just absolutely unconscionable that you would have people that supposedly have taken an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America, which is you, you're supposed to protect our sovereignty, supposed to protect us from this invasion of millions of people. But yet, as you have seen and you just articulated in Europe, they want it wide open. They want people flowing across. And so, you know, when you talk about the America First movement, I see that more as an American sovereignty movement. And again, you know, you're demonized, denigrated, disparaged as a white supremacist and everything else. Even if you're a black man like myself, you're called the black face of white supremacy. 
how do we make sure that we stand up and fight back against this intrusion and this uh, abdication of our national sovereignty here in America? Yeah, well, I mean, you hit a lot of a lot of points right on the head there. And I'm also I get called a uh, a Jewish neo-Nazi and the Washington Post has written that I'm an anti-Semite because of my relationship with the Polish right uh, and because I've written about the frauds they perpetrate. But they don't say the- anything about George Soros, who, you know, no. no. Oh, well, my, my, my writing about in Breitbart about George Soros has helped uh, galvanize or uh, catalyze their uh, their thesis that I'm an anti-Semite, which okay. is, you know, clearly ludicrous. My father was a, a Polish anti-communist dissident whose entire family was uh, perished in the Holocaust. So, I mean, it, it's obviously ludicrous. Uh, but no, we're, we're fighting similar battles. I mean, part of the globalist uh, trend we've seen with those who we are at odds with over these issues uh, is that they are harmonizing. And so we're that's why we did CPAC in Budapest and why CPAC goes to Brazil and Israel and and everywhere else because we're trying to also fight back on a coordinated basis because their ideology is globalism and breaking down borders. Ours is defensive borders. But, you know, as Ben Franklin said, you know, if we uh, don't hang together, we'll all sure for hang sure separate. hang separate. And so we uh, we need to sort of harmonize our responses and know that there's uh, there's strength in our movements working together. And Obviously, in the U.S., we've got a great alternative media. That's what I was talking about in Hungary is helping continue to perpetuate the growth of these alternative media structures, social and digital and, uh, you know, everything like Project Veritas, guerrilla journalism and Prager mm-hmm. use sort of short-form video journalism and, and conservative journals and really moving it into the digital sphere for mass distribution. It's absolutely uh, integral and necessary. Uh, but, yeah, we, uh, you know, and there's so many great, great journalists uh uh, going to the southern border and exposing this, you know, friends of mine like Jorge Ventura. I mean, just, you know, guys who are going down there and, you know, really suffering the slings and arrows of being at physical risk by exposing it. And, and James O'Keefe as well has gone down there and exposed yeah. uh, components and facets of the storyline. Uh, so I think, you know, we just got to keep, you know, there are no permanent victories, no permanent defeats. We just got to keep yeah. on fighting, exposing and discussing and voting based on these uh, values that we share. You know, it's interesting, again, you brought up a a good point talking about the alternative media because, you know, the big thing here in America is, you know, Elon Musk looking to purchase Twitter. And how interesting it was that a person who was running for president of the United States of America, Hillary Clinton, uh, went and asked the European Union to implement uh, a policy of censorship against Americans and against this company if Elon Musk gets the opportunity to buy it. Now, you talk about collusion. That's the biggest collusion that no one was talking about. A, 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 a po- prominent American political figure going to the European Union to impose censorship against Americans. Yep, yep. They, uh, they collude behind the curtains but out in the open. And, you know, I, I looked at there was uh, this letter signed by all these different groups, uh, foreign and domestic globalist organizations, NGOs. And, uh, you know, we, we looked uh, I work with Open the Books uh, on, on occasion mm-hmm. on, on these investigations. Adam Angieski, who uh, did a great story about how much was the U.S. taxpayer funding the signatories of that letter. Uh, looking to, you know, censor, you know, the potential new owner. They say, you know, open borders, unfettered capitalism uh, when it helps the the global elite. Elon Musk is a billionaire. He's an innovator. He's a creator, wants to buy the company in the free market. And uh, now they want to go to war with him because now he's not reflecting their proper political zeitgeist. Uh, But that's who they are. They're censorious. Uh, And uh, the more we expose their behavior, the more people get. And I don't really love the term, but it's app red pilled. Uh, They they, they're 
minds get opened from the brainwashing that they've been receiving from the mainstream media, the Hollywood cultural elite, the public school system, which I survived in Brooklyn, New York, and was just <laughs> a indoctrination factory. Uh, people, if you give them the information, and now with the barriers to entry broken down through the digital media revolution, through the internet age uh, for the last two decades, that's why they're scrambling to figure out every which way that they could increase their censoriousness. Uh, yeah. But the people which is good. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you had the Disinformation Governance Board, which was very uh, reflective of George Orwell's 1984. Now, you made the reference to the Matrix, and, you know, folks, if you don't understand the blue pill and the red pill, do you see more people that are willing to take the red pill? Do you see more people that are wanting to be unplugged out of the Matrix, unplugged out of this, uh, you know, globalist, progressive, socialist, statist, communist, Marxist, uh, agenda to erode yep. national and individual sovereignty? Yep. Uh, look, I think we see it in uh, in the U.S. We see it in, in elections. Uh, and I do. I am of the of the school of thought that 2020 was the, one of the great frauds uh, in history, electorally or non-electorally, just on an absolute value basis. Uh, but, you know, if you want a smaller sort of uh, proxy analysis, uh, look at the European countries. Uh, France uh, is moving to the right. Le Pen gets a, a larger share of the electorate cycle over cycle. Uh, more countries have representation in the European Parliament uh, that represents as, uh, members of these sovereigntist parties. And they're working together more uh, and, and slowing down the European Union's uh, overreach into the nation state. Uh, so I, I do see it. And they're going to fight back. Uh, Look, their ends justify the means, mm -hmm. uh, you know, communism and leftism and leftism in, in the sort of 20th century sense is just a, a softening uh, of, of ultimately communism, which is the end goal, a socialism, a, you know, at odds with classical liberalism and Burkean traditionalism. And they want full control. Uh, they believe in the power of the state. They don't believe in deregulation. They believe in more regulation. They believe in growing government. They want to tell us how to live in every which way, every facet of life. Uh, and so people ultimately want freedom. And the more they, uh, the, the, the bureaucrats, the, the sort of globalist class that wants total control, the more they uh, overreach, the more people will react and the pendulum will continue to swing back. And Do Tocqueville you... had to write about America in 1830s, democracy in America as well. We're Absolutely. Do you th and that's why I love my uh, the law here by Bastiat, written back in 1850, which really talks about what the government is supposed to do in protecting the the person, the life, the liberties, and the properties of the individual. And we've got to get back to that. Do I you? You'll love this uh, little anecdote. I, uh, when I was doing a Hunter Biden investigation in uh, October uh, 2020, I uh, actually stayed out of New York because the Southern District's been all over uh, all of us. And uh, I, I, when I left and I stayed out for a long time, I, I took off one of the covers of Fees, you know, the Foundation for Economic Education. They give copies of Bastia. And I, I took off the cover and I posted it on my door in my apartment in Manhattan. And I wrote in Sharpie, Dear SDNY, read this just in case they came knocking. Absolutely. They do need to do that. And and that gets me to this point. Do you really think that America will one day separate itself from the global body politic being the United Nations? Because I just see it as a very corrupt organization. This recent uh, endeavor to present these amendments to the World Health Organization that would have transferred much of our rights as far as our health care policy over to the WHO, which is a corrupt, corrupt body in and of itself, really, you know, owned and controlled by China. Do you think that, that that moment is coming? Do we have a generation of elected officials, politicians that will stand up and make that case? 
Just the I same as they're doing in, in Europe against the EU? Well, I think we need more, uh, you know, more Trumps, more DeSantis's, more c real conservative right wingers, not, you know, just establishment uh, rhino Republicans or old school country club Republicans who who like the globalist order. It's good for business. Uh, we need more who are seeing this and the people see it. And, you know, we I work with many groups that we expose, whether it's spending or the, the legislative agenda or the fraud that is the Security Council, which is run by uh, by despots by mm -hmm. virtue of their veto powers. Uh, and human rights councils. I mean, mm -hmm. the whole organization is farce. Uh, and, you know, it's only 10 or so years, 15 years since, you know, we really br devolved our sovereignty or attempted to to the UN. It was under Obama, who was like the ultimate globalist academic elite, uh, who was really in favor of devolving uh, America's sovereign powers uh, that are endowed and, and guaranteed by our Constitution to the UN. Uh, and, you know, Trump did separate us uh, somewhat and, you know, cut the funding for it. And I think that will continue as long as conservatives and, and Repu classical Republicans who are classical liberals, yes. uh, you know, win at the ballot box, then we will continue to decouple our, uh, our sovereignty from the UN's ability to hinder it. Uh, and I do certainly hope that it will play out. I don't know how long it will take. I mean, the UN is becoming more and more farcical. What is the most encouraging thing that you have seen recently that leads you to believe that we will break the chains of this assault against our national and individual sovereignty? I actually think it's the ability to use sort of acerbic humor and satire, whether it's Babylon uh, you know, B. Babylon B, Let's Go Brandon, the woke culture, Dave Chappelle, uh, even Bill Maher. People are waking up to the censoriousness of the left, and the left is over, over, uh, overplaying their hand uh, in the way they're trying to control our societies uh, because they know they're losing their grip. They know that 20 years, 25 years on after the Internet revolution and information can be distributed against their firewalls or through their firewalls. Uh, you know, they really controlled everything through the Hollywood cultural machine and the mainstream media for generations. And now they're losing that grip and you see their behavior it becomes more and more unhinged, which creates a more virtuous cycle of waking people up to how unhinged these people are and how they want to control them. Uh, and I think coming out of the pandemic, uh, seeing this administration, seeing the inflation, uh, you know, most people recognize that with, you know, approaching five to eight dollar gas, we should be drilling uh, and we're not. We'd rather fund it through uh, Iran, who wants to build nukes and wipe out our allies, uh, or Venezuela, which is destroying Latin America and helping, you know, drive new Chavismo to South America. Uh, people, you know, understand that this is really farcical, that this is unacceptable. And the satire that we're creating around it, uh, the fact that it's so well received and, and broadly received, I think uh, tells me it's kind of like what my father experienced in communism, that they tried to outlaw everything, but they could not, you know, ban us from laughing at them. Uh, and, you know, same reason that the CCP bans Winnie the Pooh because of the uh, the way people use it as a stand in for Xi Jinping. Uh, so, you know, the, the totalitarians will try and ban humor. But much like freedom, the freedom to laugh is part of the human condition and they will not be able to do so. Ultimately, we will win. Our freedoms will be preserved. Well, satire is a powerful weapon. And I think that that's one of the things that Saul Alinsky talks about in Rules for Radicals is something to leverage and use against your opposition. Matthew, yeah. where can people follow your work and, and read about the things that you're doing? Sure. So uh, my name at Matthew Tiermond, uh, surname T-Y-R-M-A-N-D, Twitter, Getter, 
uh, Facebook. Yeah, I on Bannon show a lot and do a lot of other just kind of random hits. Uh, this is not my day job, but uh, I do a lot of uh, traveling back and forth. I'm also on Polish television twice a week. So if people want to check out TVP World, I'm on there. I do segments uh, every Tuesday and Thursday. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking time to be with us here at the Staff Fast and Loyal podcast. And I look forward to seeing you again. And I enjoy being with you up in New York City about uh, four months or so ago. Yeah, so God bless wire. you. Yeah, New York YRs. And I'm a huge fan of yours. Yeah, you're very kind. We're in Congress, and I was such a fan of your uh, of everything you did and stood for and, and spoke about. So. Well, we'll continue to do so. So God bless you and safe travels. Thank you, Matthew. God bless you, Walter. Thank you. Hey, thanks, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. I really want you to pay attention to that important word, sovereignty. The whole thing about supreme power and authority, the supreme power and authority in the United States of America is not in the Capitol, it's not in the White House, it's not in the state capitals, it's in each and every one of us, because that's the uniqueness of the United States of America, is that you're sovereign because your rights, freedoms, liberty, liberty comes from that sovereign God. And when we allow government with a little G to replace God with the big G, then that's how we lose that sovereignty. That's how we lose that relationship. That's how we lose our supreme power and authority. Because as I said, show me anywhere where any elected official has the enumerated power to tell you, a healthy person, a small business owner, that you're not essential. But yet if you forget your supreme power and authority, you forget the laws of nature and nature's God, if you forget that the government exists by the consent of the governed, then they will usurp your authority. And you, by a lack of understanding and knowledge, will abdicate that sovereignty to, that sovereignty to them. So that's the whole purpose of this podcast, is, is to better inform, educate you, so that you can be activated. And I will once again recommend that you go out there and you get this simple little essay called The Law by Frederick Bastiat. Because what he wrote about in the middle 1800s so true about where we are today. Go out, as you heard Tim Barton talked about. Read Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And once again, understand what makes America this special place. Because if we don't see it as a special place, which is what the progressive socialist left wants, then they will come in and, well, fundamentally transform us to something that we were never intended to be. I hope you enjoyed this program. When you see the little like button down there, please hit on it and also share it with others. And I look forward to seeing you every week, Thursday evenings, 7 p.m. Central Time, 8 p.m. Eastern on the Steadfast and Law Podcast. Special thanks and shout out to producer Chad, to executive producer Lisa, and to my dear friend, my fellow warrior brother, CW3, United States Army Retired, Ryan Weaver for the theme song to this podcast. God bless you. God bless America. Have a great night. Before they burn it down.